Hi everyone, this is Megan Berg, founder of Therapy Insights and speech therapist in Western Montana. Welcome to a new episode in our series hosted by the Cultural Expansion Cooperative, where we are exploring the range of experiences and approaches of different cultures, both across the United States and around the world within the fields of speech, occupational, and physical therapy. Um, which are all very much global professions. There are therapists that are located around the world, serving people from all different cultures and different backgrounds. And for me personally, as someone who was born and raised in the United States, I often get trapped in this idea that believing that the American standard of rehabilitation therapy is the only standard, when in fact, The ideas, practices, solutions, and approaches of rehab therapy are incredibly diverse. I very much grew up on the idea of American exceptionalism, this idea that America's values, political system, and history are unique and worthy of universal admiration, which often leads to this kind of strange idea that our systems, national organizations, rules, and regulations should be a model for the rest of the world, when in fact, I personally think that we have a lot to learn about patient care and research and innovation in our approach to therapy by looking to the rest of the world. Um, And so today, the Cultural Expansion Cooperative is speaking with Zahia Ghadar, SLP and PhD candidate uh, based in Beirut, Lebanon. And I wanted to provide a little background for this episode. On August 4th, 2020, a large amount of ammonium nitrate stored at the port of Beirut in the capital city of Lebanon accidentally exploded, causing at least 218 deaths, 7,000 injuries, and about 15 billion US dollars in property damage leaving an estimated 300,000 people homeless. The blast physically shook the entire country of Lebanon. It was felt in Turkey, Syria, Palestine, and Israel, as well as parts of Europe, and was heard in Cyprus more than 150 miles away. It was detected by the USGS as a seismic event magnitude of 3.3 and is considered one of the most powerful accidental artificial non-nuclear explosions in history. Additionally, Lebanon is experiencing an economic crisis related to inflation caused by a significant decline in the country's GDP. The Lebanese pound has lost more than 90% of its value, driving up the cost of almost everything in the country reliant on imports and demolishing purchasing power. A soldier's monthly wage was once the equivalent of $900, is now worth about $50. Poverty rates are skyrocketing in the population of about 6.5 million, with about 80% of people classed as poor. Lebanon's banks are paralyzed. Savers have been frozen out of U.S. dollar accounts. Withdrawals in local currency apply exchange rates that erase up to 80% of the value. Reliant on imported fuel, Lebanon is facing an energy crunch. Even before the crisis, power was in short supply, including in the capital. Now households are lucky to receive more than a few hours per day. Fuel prices have soared. A ride in a shared taxi um, costs about 2,000 pounds before the the crisis, but now costs about 40,000 pounds. Lebanese have emigrated in in the most significant exodus since the Civil War. Uh, Believing that their savings are lost, many have no plans to return. 
A 2021 Gallup poll found a record 63% of people surveyed wanted to leave permanently, up from 26% before the crisis. And among those leaving are doctors. The World Health Organization has said that most hospitals are operating at 50% capacity. Um, They say that about 40% of doctors, mostly specialists, and 30% of nurses have permanently emigrated or are working part-time abroad. And all of this data is from a Reuters article titled Just How Bad Is Lebanon's Economic Meltdown, published on June 23, 2022. And I say all of this not only to provide context for Zahia's references in her interview, but also to remind us that we are very much globally connected And as a global profession, we can work to support each other and to advocate for our field beyond national borders. We want to recognize the hard work that all Lebanese therapists are contributing to their communities right now, even in the face of fuel, medication, food, and Wi-Fi shortages. And we all have a lot to learn from you in regards to being resourceful, resilient, and responsive to community needs. So with that, I will pass it off to the Cultural Expansion Cooperative. Thanks for listening. Hi there, welcome to today's episode. This is Jinan Maz. I'm here today with a Lebanese speech pathologist named Zahia Ghattar. We're here to talk more about what it's like to be a speech pathologist where she's from. So Zahia, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Where do you live? Hi, Jinan. Uh, Actually, I'm a speech therapist in Lebanon, Beirut, Lebanon, uh, since 12 years now. Uh, I work in different settings. I have my private practice and I work uh, on call in a private hospital also, and I do home health. I I work also in the university and St. Joseph University where I give, uh, I'm a lecturer for the dysphagia course for the uh, graduate level. And uh, I follow up also with students for their thesis, for their uh, undergraduate and graduate thesis, especially when it's related to adult uh, pathologies. And uh, I'm doing also my PhD, focusing on patient education and dysphagia. Uh, and uh, jointly in St. Joseph University and uh, Liège University in Belgium. Oh, Zahi, you've got your hands full, and I love that you've got your hands in so many different things. Um, but let's start at the beginning. Tell me how you learned about speech therapy, what got you into it. Actually, uh, the first time I heard about speech pathology, I was like uh, in ninth grade, uh, or in tenth grade in high school, and um, I was with my sister who used to work in Orphelina, uh, uh, like a uh, place where there's uh, orphans and they had a, a school and a special uh, department schools uh, department for kids with special needs and there was uh, there was a speech therapist working there and I got to meet her and I just like I was at first to be very honest I never heard about this major and I got the chance to observe with her a few sessions and to understand what she does and what is the purpose of the our career and the job and I felt in love with it and that was the first time I uh, I discovered speech therapy. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So how did you get down the path of speech therapy? What is it like to become a speech therapist in Lebanon? Okay. Actually, it's a bit challenging, to be very honest. Uh, to start with, like, you know, like it's been 12 years I'm working, so... 
I finished university 12 years ago. <laughs> uh, just to, to be like, I know it, uh, the system differs from an, uh, a country to another. Like in Lebanon, in order to uh, to have our degree or our BA or bachelor, we have to do, to do four years at university. And in the final year, we do also uh, like a small thesis a small like we write a small thesis and uh, we do we do the defense and we are able to work upon this degree uh, when i finished university there was there weren't any master program in lebanon they started their master program in 2014 and it was the first time they we have master degree for speech therapy, speech and language pathology in lebanon and uh, then, like, I did my master's also in speech and language pathology. And uh, now, like, we still don't have PhD in Lebanon, like, related to speech and language pathology. I'm doing it in public health, for example. Uh, but, um, like, working in it, it was, to be very honest, there was a lot of gaps. And especially why, uh, when you start working, because we didn't have any course related to uh, to swallowing disorders, for example, or to, to dysphagia. Uh, we had like an introduction about aphasia and like a few courses, like most, uh, we have a lot uh, of courses related to kids and everything related to kids, pediatric, but not to medical SLP, even though now I'm more specialized in med, I'm more a medical SLP and I'm not a pediatric SLP. So uh, I had the, like to take a lot of workshop. I uh, traveled a lot to France, to Belgium, to do internships, uh, to do uh, to attend workshops there in different, uh, let's say, categories or different uh, objectives. And uh, I even like later, like a few years back, also I I discovered the world of congresses and conventions, and I used to go and uh, participate in uh, Congress, and especially with the European Society of Swelling Disorders in Barcelona and Milano, and um, which also gave me the opportunity to uh, discover the research world. Because to be very honest, when I graduated in 2009, like when I had my bachelor in 2009, uh, we're still not really relying on evidence-based practice. We never heard about, about evidence-based practice in 2009 when we were served, like we started working, like like even when we did our papers and we write the, the small thesis that we did, it was like somehow some research online, but it wasn't like the medical research was with like uh, working on um, uh, finding a research on PubMed or so. But uh, when I did the master's, I, I discovered this new world of evidence-based practice and what we are doing and what we're supposed to do when we are doing research and how we are supposed to find and to work with our patient. And like we improved, I improved my, uh, let's say, my practice. So somehow this is the, like, there is a lot of challenges and I cannot hide there is a, there is still a lot of challenges in Lebanon because it's a profession that they, it's not really known, even though now it's been around 20 years it's in Lebanon but it's still considered a young profession in Lebanon. Uh, people know more about our role while working in pediatric and with kids, so with autistic kids, with uh, kids with uh, learning disabilities, uh, but uh, not a lot. Uh, our role is not really known while working with adult patients. Like when we tell them that we work with a patient who, have a, who has a stroke, who has uh, a brain injury, a neurodegenerative disease, or like we work to improve the swallowing, the speech, the voice, even or the cognition is not really, really known. And we feel like 
I feel like uh, I need always to advocate to what I'm doing and why and the purpose of it. But uh, it's improving. I cannot say it's not improving. It's improving a lot, but for sure, we still need to work a lot on this level. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> also, it's just as speech pathology people in the name the word speech it comes up right and that's, that's all that people think about and like swallowing what do you mean i've been swallowing since birth and right, exactly. there's that and just teaching people do you feel like there are also so with the population with the general public it's understandable they may not know about speech pathology are you experiencing that as well with other medical professionals like physicians or other therapists Yes, exactly, and they, uh, I feel it especially, and because I work in a hospital, a hospital as a, uh, I'm on call in one hospital, and uh, I'm rarely. I used to work in two hospitals, to be honest, and in one hospital for twelve years, I was on call, or they like they uh, they requested me to come, in twelve years for around three patients. So, and even though I try to advocate and I try to explain, I even, I offer to do some, uh, let's say like a small workshop for that team to introduce our profession, what we do and what the target, it never resonated with them or they were never like uh, motivated to do so because there, there is all of this budget cut and they don't uh, want to the, the team to come to the hospital just to do a uh, workshop and so on. But in, another, in the second hospital, in Be because the first hospital in the south of Lebanon where it's a bit far from the capital, like in every country when it's a bit far from the capital, like the knowledge is less, the education is a bit different. So, um, and the, the like it's less advanced, let's say. Uh, in Beirut, like it's the, which is the capital, capital of Lebanon, where it's more known. But also, I have the same challenges. Like when I'm called upon in the in the hospital, as you said, I'm here. I'm, they call me because some patient is not able to talk. He's not able to talk uh, uh, after a stroke. But rarely, I'm asked to come to do a swallowing evaluation, a bedside evaluation, because it's not always there is no link between speech language pathology for them and swallowing. Each time I'm trying to explain for the neurologist or the ENT doctor that we have a role to do, or even the nurses in the, on the floor, like we have a role to do. Like I come, okay, he's, he, have a, he has a speech problem, but did you ever read his uh, swallowing? Is he able to swallow? Is he able to take the medication? He's able to drink water? Like sometimes I'll just say, but why are you asking? We put a tag and he's able to swallow by the, or the NG tube. And it's working. Why do we need to do more than this? So now it's a bit better, but I still have this question. And I have it also from the families. Like they ask me, what are you doing here? Like, oh, you are here. So you are going to do that therapy. But what kind of exercises do you do to let him swallow again? And how can you improve this? And the problem, like you, we are here on call. So I'm, I'm not an employee in the hospital who can just come every day to explain to all the team. So when I'm not here, I need the team to advocate for me. And when they are not convinced or when they don't know, they won't do it. So it's a cycle. We are trying to improve it. But yes, I have challenges with the team and I have challenges with the family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like there's so many education opportunities. And I so it sounds like going back to the dysphagia, usually putting some sort of feeding tube, whether it's nasogastric or just a peg tube, is the solution. Is and 
since you are also working in home health and outpatient, are are these patients then having long-term feeding tubes and just being left like that? Sometimes, yes. And uh, sometimes I almost like find myself fighting with the doctor or with a physician who is in charge of the patient. Like, give me time. Just give me time to give hope for the patient and a chance for the patient to try before inserting the NG tube or the PEC tube. But uh, sometimes I come to a home health session and the, uh, the tube is there already. So uh, I have to work with him to do the, to try at least uh, to, uh, let's say, to fight, to have, uh, to, to work on the swallowing in order to remove that tube as fast as possible in order to preserve this, the quality of life and uh, in order to preserve the pleasure of food and of eating in general. So, yes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's the fastest way. Like they put that tube, it's the fastest way. So like they can just send the patient home. And they even sometimes the families I had, like throughout the years, I had a lot of families who told me like, if we knew that we had the opportunity or the chance to do a rehabilitation to prevent the inser- uh, the insertion of a tube, we won't have put the tube, but we didn't know. And the doctor never gave us the choice of doing rehabilitation or putting the, or there's a step of trial to try to, to do the rehabilitation. And maybe if the situation of the patient didn't improve and there is a risk of, um, let's say, death or any, like, there is... No patient is uh, like uh, another patient. Like we need to study all the component and all the even the desire, like ethically, to ask the patient. Maybe the patient doesn't want that uh, that tube, or the family doesn't want that, that tube, and they prefer to uh, try with him and to do the therapy and try everything possible before inserting and maybe never inserting that tube. Maybe, but mm-hmm. like a lot of families, like they express this, but that's the situation. And again, I also tell you, like, it's improving, but it doesn't mean like it's improving like 90%. No, we are still like around 30% improving, yeah. but at least we are improving. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. Like case by case basis, but, people are learning, people. And as you said, uh, doctor by doctor, physician by physician, mm-hmm. like it depends a lot on the knowledge of the physician who uh, oriented that, who is, um, who oriented the patient at the therapist, who, who is working with the patient. So if, uh, depending on his knowledge, if he knows about speech language pathology or no, and that we have a role to do with our patient and their families. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it sounds like quality of life is definitely the, the big overarching theme. And how does the kind of medical system, you've kind of touched a little bit about it, but even the insurance or medical system impact your ability to practice? Exactly. Like the, the challenge that we have in Lebanon, I, I know like in different countries and uh, like uh, the insurance cover the speech therapy, the speech language pathology sessions, the assessments and the sessions and the insurance when you present maybe a certain report, you can uh, precise how many sessions you are going to do and they give you approval upon them, like the package. Uh, and I know like in some European countries, um, it's the government who cover every medical aspect for the patient and from the therapy session from the assessment to the rehabilitation in in lebanon it's it's neither uh, the insurance uh, neither the government it's a, it's a family who are paying for the speech and language pathology session and which is a big challenge and uh, because some, sometimes we need a very long treatment and sometimes the families don't have the chance and don't have the financial capacity to do so 
And there's a very, a very important uh, uh, financial burden, especially when the patient needs OT, PT, and uh, SLP. So there is a lot of, up, uh, and that's in addition to the medical uh, services or the medical needs that the patient needs. So there is a lot of things that they need to pay. And sometimes the patient, they start with the priority. So if he's not able to walk, they go to the PT now for the physical therapist and they work with the PT just because it's walking now. Other families, because for, for them and their values, they feel it's related to talking, so they start with the speech. Yeah, other families, maybe it's swallowing. They start with a speech for working on swallowing if they know that we work with swallowing. So it depends uh, on each family. And to add on now, and our current situation in Lebanon, because I don't know if you know, we have a huge economic crisis since October 2019, and we have a huge inflation. So uh, the currency like lost a lot of its... Um, um, uh, its value its value exactly so uh, people are like literally have a huge challenges in their daily life we don't have electricity these days and we don't have fuel we don't have medications we don't have uh, bread even and uh, people are struggling on a lot of levels so when there there, there is need for a therapy and speech language pathology therapy on uh, or any other therapy if it's not really let's say, a matter of death or life, they're not doing it because people are not able to afford now to do any kind of therapy, just only in certain situations if it's really mandatory. For example, also, like because as you know, we, we had the 4th of August explosion blast last year and we're still receiving patients due to the 4th of August explosion of 2020. And we have patients who are still like, this week, I had a 27 years old patient who uh, had a brain, in a very, uh, very severe brain injury due to the blast, and she's still at the hospital after one year, and she's not able to talk, she's not able to swallow, and the, the family isn't able to to cover for the speech therapy. They are trying to find someone who can come and to do intensively, but with a very symbolic price because mm-hmm. the government doesn't pay and the family isn't able to pay. So we have all these challenges at one, at like in the same time, yeah. so yeah. yes. Yeah, no, and it's, it's become maybe speech therapy and other therapies may not be as exactly. important right now because of this economic exactly. situation. And exactly. But when you bring up this um, 27 year old with the brain injury, my first thought is since she's been in the hospital for a year, is there a step in, you know, in some um, countries have, you know, intensive therapy, which is kind of the step between the hospital and home? Is that something that is present in Lebanon? Uh, there is rehabilitation centers where they can move from the hospital to the rehabilitation center. But the problem because of the situation in Lebanon, the rehabilitation center in Lebanon, there are very few. There are, there are around four or five. And because due to the situation, there is no fuel. There is no medication, and the rehabilitation center, which is near or in the same, let's say, geog- uh, geographic region uh, where the patient lives, uh, there is no. It's not possible to receive any new patient. It's been few months now due to the economic situation and the country situation. But in the hospital, um, there is fuel and there is medication, and so there are. She, uh, she is there, even though. She doesn't. She she needs rehabilitation, but she doesn't. She doesn't need medical treatment to be in hospital. Right. But due to the situation, actual situation, 
they cannot remove her from the hospital to the rehabilitation center. Yeah, no. So they need someone to come to the hospital to do the rehabilitation. Right, right. Which will put the family even more because they are bringing someone as if as a private therapist. Yeah, because the hospital have a therapist also. If if someone were to be, you know, whoever is still at the rehabilitation hospitals, is the is rehab there as a part of the staff, or is it kind of more of the on call that you're describing that the hospital has? Yes, uh, like some hospitals, they have one speech therapist for the whole hospital. Oh, so she won't be able to do that rehabilitation in the intensity that's required. And there are rehabilitation centers alone, like in a different uh, division, let's say, where the, uh, there is the rehabilitation team who can be there to do the rehabilitation, not even daily, but maybe two to three times per week. Okay, yeah. Yes. And when you're seeing these patients for dysphagia or aphasia, or, you know, all these different diagnoses, kind of what does, you know, are there any assessment tools or is it hard you know do you have to make your own things i don't imagine there are a lot of things available in arabic but tell us some more about that yes uh, actually to start with the swallowing assessment actually uh, uh, also in lebanon because we follow somehow the same european system and at universities so as a speech language pathologist uh, we do only the bedside assessment and we don't do the modified barium swallow neither the fees uh, usually, the modified barium swallow is, uh, is done by the radiologist with the presence of an ANT doctor, and the fees is done by the fees doctor. So uh, the the fees is done with the ANT doctor. So uh, so usually, as a speech language pathologist, we if I have a patient who has swallowing disorders, and I know because I know now I advocate always to have an instrumental evaluation. I call and I ask for an NT doctor to do the swallowing evaluation and not only to do a scope, to try to do a food trial with the fees mm-hmm. to know exactly what's happening with that patient is swallowing because not all the anti doctor does this. And afterward, I will do the bed swelling evaluation after doing the instrumental evaluation of the anti. So that's what we have. And to be very honest in Lebanon, we know that the modified barium swallow exists but it's rarely, rarely done. Like in 12 years, uh, we were able to request it for one patient only. And it's what, it was done for one patient only. Uh, and they, they always go to barium swallow, which is... Oh, yeah. Not, so you, we always have also to advocate. Barium swallow is not modified, modified barium swallow. And we need to, uh, the, the, let's say the need of this test uh, is totally different from the MBS, but also that's one of the challenges that we have also. Yes, exactly. And that's yeah. one part of the swallowing. But when we talk also about a physiology and if I want to do an assessment, now we have the BAT, the Lebanese uh, Bilanguage uh, Avicia Test. Uh, um, a student of mine, now she's in uh, Toulouse, France. She did it as a master's degree and she's doing this, her PhD. And she adapted the BAT to the Lebanese version, mm-hmm. knowing like each test 
uh, can change because you know like each word can change from country to country even for Arabic speaker like uh, some words can mean something in Lebanese which can differ from Egyptians from uh, mm -hmm. any other Arabic countries uh, like because you have the Arabic the standard Arabic uh, language and you have the dialect like the, um, the the language spoken in each Arabic country so it's a new test, it's still not validated, but it's adapted mm -hmm. now. We are waiting for the validation uh, to be published. Uh, at least we have this now. We have the web, it was also uh, translated to Arabic. We have the Arabic web also. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was translated and validated, but on a very small uh, group of patients. Mm -hmm. The sensitivity and sens sensibility of the test is not really high, but at least it's done. Um, on another front, like uh, for also for the um, not only the the assessment, only also for the rehabilitation, we have a very big lack of uh, tools, like tools uh, which are uh, adjust to the culture, to the linguistic mm -hmm. knowledge, and to the uh, habits of the country. Like uh, when you when you are going to show a patient, let's say pancakes in Lebanon. Okay, some people eat pancakes in Lebanon for sure, and they know maple syrup and everything. But it's not a Lebanese breakfast. So, but when you show them an usha in Lebanon, which is a certain uh, kind of dough with the cheese or um, a certain kind of herb that we eat in the, in the morning, it will be something, let's say, uh, the patient will know it directly. So we always need to print out pictures from uh, online, to draw pictures, to take pictures, to, uh, to cut them and to laminate them in order to use them with our patient or to have them on our, uh, on our iPad in order to work with the patient. We don't have tools which are let's say, uh, there where we can just like buy and use, which will facilitate a lot our daily life as uh, therapists. Mm -hmm. um, even like when we are working on, let's say, uh, the, um, you know, the proverbs, I don't know, the proverbs yeah. or the, sent like the, uh, like when you say a funny story and when you say it, when it's American, like American uh, proverbs or French, even if you translate it, it's not, it doesn't give the same meaning or that same uh, symbol or the same purpose. So every kind of material for rehabilitation or assessment, we need to create it and to adapt it in Lebanon in order to use it with the patient. Now, for kids, we have a certain evaluation also for the oral, the LOL, which is a tool to evaluate the language uh, the oral language in uh, kids, uh, it's validated to the Lebanese population now. It's done from by the St. Joseph University, but it's the only assessment. And the AT now, it's valid, it's adapted, but still not validated. But we still need and the web, but and we still need a lot of other tools for voice therapy, for example. And uh, when we are working with a patient for disaster patient, when they need to read a text or when they need to, uh, we, we want to evaluate the the level of the voice of the how many hertz or the uh, the pitch if it's okay or it's not okay we rely on american british french uh, other uh, let's say results but with a lot of adaptation and a lot of uh, work to do before able to use it with our patient here in lebanon mm -hmm. so yeah and and lebanon is yeah, Lebanon is a multilingual country, right? So how does that play a role into things too, or does that change? Actually, in Lebanon, we are trilingual, and somehow we, we speak Lebanese, Lebanese Arabic, and we uh, we speak French and English, 
and even we have, there are a lot of people who speak Armenian also, and uh, and for sure you find other uh, languages, but like the, the most language, the four most languages spoken are these four. Um, the idea that's the, the positive part of it when we have a patient who is trilingual or bilingual using a French or an American or an English, let's say, material or assessment will facilitate our life and our daily therapy life because we are able just to take the assessment and work and work with it. But uh, not all patients will be able, not with all patients will be able to do the, to do so. And especially, you know, when a certain patient has a stroke, sometimes it affects their, their second language or their first language. So we need assessment to be or tools to be trilingual or bilingual because sometimes they are they they lose their Arabic but they are able to speak in French or the contrary. They lose their French but they are able to speak in Arabic. So we need tools to be, let's say, adapted in different languages also. So uh, and even if it's in English, we need it to be in English but adapted culturally to Lebanon. So to right. use the word related to Lebanon and when it's a French, the same thing, even like if we want to take a French or an English assessment, sometimes the pictures, it doesn't uh, ring a bell for the patient because it's not culturally adapted. Um, for example, like somehow uh, when we talk about, let's say, wine in, uh, in a certain assessment, in B81 of the picture, there is wine. We know like in our culture in Lebanon, not everybody drinks wine. So we need to adapt. Like if we know that, that the patient in front of us doesn't drink wine, maybe we need to choose another picture or we need to choose a picture adapted to the patient. And sometimes like... Uh, they uh, there's like as I told you before like the proverbs or the a certain like anecdote like when they say about a funny story it doesn't um, it's not in the habit in Lebanon like when they, there is the, a cookie jar okay we know the cookie jar but the cookie jar is not one of the culture in Lebanon and you know it in the BDAE, uh, BDAE the test uh, for the story the in the aphasia uh, test where the woman is taking the cookie jar on the escalator and uh, on the stairs and uh, the patient is supposed to talk about it. The, they will know it's a cookie jar, but it's not 100% uh, related to the Lebanese culture. So even when the patient is able to speak French, we need to adapt or English, we need to adapt whatever tools we find online or we buy in order to be culturally um, adequate for the patient. Yeah, maybe looking at that cookie theft picture that a lot of speech pathologists are familiar with, um, yes. maybe what are some things you might change about it if you had the chance to make it more culturally appropriate? Actually, uh, instead of having cookies, maybe like uh, having a different kind of dessert. Like in Lebanon, we have the, you know, baklava, like it's a kind of the Lebanese dessert, or we have like something, or maybe manaish, like what is the, the dough with the, uh, with the cheese that they, they put, if we put this, you know, just to change the picture in a way that the patient will be more, um, he will have like, uh, it will mean, mean more to him as a, as a picture. Yeah. Yeah. For example. So when you're doing therapy, are you finding that most of your therapy or your assessments are in Arabic and French? What kind of what does that look like? How are you deciding what language to use? 
uh, it depends on the patient. As if it's let's say if it's a voice therapy, usually mostly it's in Arabic because like someone is coming and is in Lebanon and spoke is speaking especially in Arabic. But sometimes also in voice therapy, let's say that uh, my uh, I have one patient who has a dysphonia, and um, she works in an NGO online. Uh, but uh, which based in UK, so she needs to improve her. Like, like she works, she works all the time in English. She needs to work on her voice in English. So we work also on, in English during the sessions. And uh, other patients, like when we have stroke patients who have aphasia, let's say, uh, depending on the assessment, we try to choose. And after discussing with the patient, if he doesn't have a cognitive impairment, or after discussing with the family. We know the need of the patient, uh, what he used to use in his daily life. He's, uh, he used more the French in his daily life, the Arabic, the English. Uh, accordingly, we choose the right, uh, let's say, language. And sometimes when we are doing two sessions, let's say, per week, we do one session in Arabic of rehabilitation, another session in English, for example or one session in English and one session in French. Mm -hmm. It depends on each patient. And even with um, when I used to work, I work uh, with kids, uh, when we have learning disabilities, and let's say we have a, dyslex uh, uh, a kid with dyslexia, it's going to affect his English and his Arabic language, uh, written language. So when we are working with him throughout the week, we also do one session in English and one session in Arabic to improve his written language, his Arabic written language and his English written language. Because, you know, each written language is different. So the, uh, the Arabic has different uh, strategy to acquire the language and uh, even the letters are written differently and the direction of the uh, writing and the reading is different. So we need to do total different uh, strategies from the one we are doing in French or in English. In general, so usually we it depends on the patient. We divide. We sometimes even in the same session because sometimes some patients are doing one session per week. We do like in the same session half of it in French, let's say, and half of it in English. So it depends. And sometimes we mix the three of them in the same time. <laughs> so it depends. So because because our let's say the spoken Lebanese, our spoken Lebanese, it's a mixture of French, Arabic, and English. Mm -hmm. So uh, our Lebanese is not only Arabic, it's a mixture of three or a mixture of two. So, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, and the natural um, colloquial, colloquial Arabic, it's just a combination of those lang of the, all three, so you can't really exactly. help it. Exactly. Um, yeah, and would you kind of maybe break down, like, are there any... Um, in terms of the language and the access to healthcare and the socioeconomic status with, with what's going on, how is that kind of changing your practice now with what you mentioned about the current situation in Lebanon? Uh, actually, like, if you know, because now, like, as I was telling you, I work in practice, I have my private practice, like I have my private clinic and I work as a home health and I work on call at the patient at uh, the hospital, and I do telepractice due to after, especially after COVID. And due uh, due to the current situation and whatever is happening, like what's happening in Lebanon now, we have like shortage in everything. So we have shortage in electricity. So when there is no electricity, there is no Wi-Fi. So we cannot do telepractice. When there is no fuel, we cannot do home health. And when there is no fuel, we cannot receive patients in our clinic. So it's affecting our daily work. And uh, it's, as therapists, it's affecting our daily life. And as, uh, from the patient uh, 
uh, let's say, side, it's affecting their quality of life also. Uh, because even it's not only about the economic crisis, like even if some patients maybe they are able to pay and to come to the therapy, but when there is no possibility to do it, if there is no uh, fuel and no electricity and no, there is no means to do it. So it's affecting even the uh, quality of life and the, the health of patients in general. Now, nowadays, and especially now, each day is being uh, even a more important challenge with this. So, yes. Yeah. What, how is that also with when you're teaching your students at the university level? What is that looking like? Actually, it's being um, like we need to be very positive and to uh, always to say, uh, to try to give them uh, the, let's say, the hope or the uh, positive aspect of, okay, there is challenges, but we need to be creative on how to anticipate these challenges and how to overcome these challenges in order to always put the patient first and how to advocate for the patient and try to, like, in all ways possible to do the session for the patient. Uh, mm -hmm. Even if there, if there is no means to do it, try to, let's try to find a mean and not to block there because sometimes some patients will accept to the, come to the clinic even if there is no electricity. They will come ahead, they will take the stairs, and they will do it without the air conditioning. They don't mind. Uh, and we try to do it before the... It will be before the night. So we do, it will be during daytime. So this way, they will do the session, but but not, uh, but not in the ideal conditions, for example. So we try to, I try always to motivate them and always to highlight what we do and the important aspect of what we do and how can we can really change the the daily life of someone. Mm -hmm. And there's something I always do in my uh, in my dysphagia course. So uh, when I do it with my students, like the first session, I always ask them, "What is your favorite drink and what is your favorite dish?" So, you know, it's students, they are motivated. Everyone tell me like, I like coffee, I like tea, and everyone like, I like lasagna, french fries, and everyone like just like try to give you their, uh, their choices because it's uh, out of question, like out of the box question. And then I tell them, imagine you love this dish this much or like, you love coffee this much, are not able to, uh, to drink it or to swallow it. And, and I go from there to tell them like the importance of what we do and like uh, the um, it's not only it's not a luxury what we do it's it's something it's not spa it's something uh, uh, vital and we want like uh, we need to do it so a patient can live differently and live decently actually so even uh, on the communication level like the frustration of not being able to talk or the frustration of not able to express what we need uh, what we need so i always try to motivate them but believe me sometimes when everything's happening and it's not really easy to keep the motivation and especially to encourage them to take uh, let's say certain uh, cases which are challenging or they need a lot of care and a lot of uh, communication and coordination between the therapist and the team and the family. Sometimes they tend to go to easiest cases or to easiest situations just because there is a lot of challenges in everything they are doing. But we always try to advocate for this and to motivate them into this and to give a purpose of what, for what we are doing in our daily, uh, let's say, therapy work. Yeah. No, I love that example you give Zahiev, just how to continue that motivation, right? That in rehab, um, 
I heard it once from someone that, oh, rehab, they're just like the cheerleaders for the patients. You know, they're the ones that are really helping push these patients back to the best quality of life as possible. And, and I love that you you bring that to your class. It's it's so important. Try, yes. Yeah. Um, what would you tell those, you know, people who are interested in speech pathology or to your younger speech pathology self about what this field is about? Actually, uh, if I want to tell my younger self, mm -hmm. um, I will tell myself to dare more, uh, to try more, to uh, because I used now with experience, I pushed myself to to dare, to go forward, to try. Uh, I used to uh, wait a lot before doing anything. So uh, even though. I, I know I achieved a lot on the uh, career level, but I think I if I did it even more and I pushed myself to discover more, like now when I know that articles were there like years before I graduated in 2009, I would tell myself, no, I should have done this before. Like always try to look for new new techniques, new, uh, uh, let's say, uh, technologies and new achievement uh, articles, research try always to find the best for our patient because we are, as you were saying, we are the, let's say the hope, the cheerleader for our the patient. And we are the persons who's gonna give them the chance to give, to live this quality of life properly. And um, I always, always, I, I always think something and I always say it also to my student that don't, it's not, okay, I know it's a job and I know it's a, uh, career and a job and we need to do it as sometimes we are employee in a certain place but our career it's a choice like uh, and i try to tell them because that's something also i didn't know before before like going through the major i didn't know the all the aspect of the major and i discovered throughout the way and throughout the years and i try now to tell them what is waiting for them and to tell them what is the daily life of a speech therapist and speech, uh, speech language pathologist and what we do and how is our day like when we finish work we have work at home we have to read we have to be updated we have to do workshops we have to attend uh, um, congresses we have to find a new research we have like there is a lot of things we can do to improve ourselves you cannot stop and to be realistic the day you stop is the day you say i'm gonna take the day off but in our feet there is no day off there is like because there is still there is a lot of like improvement and changes because we are working with the human beings and things are always evolving and changing and getting let's say better or changing in general so i tell them just always have this uh, uh, desire to know more and uh, to discover more and do the best for the patient in general. Yeah, yeah. Being that lifelong learner is yes. definitely exactly. an important thing in re rehab, whether SLP, OT, PT. It's something that you, it's not, like you said, it's not just for yourself, it's for these patients, these people exactly. you're helping to hopefully make their lives better. Exactly. And one more thing, uh, just to add, also to talk to other therapists. Because mm -hmm. usually when you start working, also you, you are too isolated alone and in your bubble of speech-language pathology, you don't go, so you don't reach out for other therapists, for the OT, for the PT, for even for the doctor, for the physicians, or for the ENT. Also to dare to do this, 
to talk, to go out to talk or to ask and even sometimes to explain what we do. And this way they will understand this, uh, like this, uh, they will understand our major and they will understand our targets, our goals and uh, the therapy that we are providing. Right, right. And how our goals are all common goals. You know, I may be looking at someone's um, speech and language because of their stroke, but how is that going to impact their PT session? Well, if they can understand the directions better, then maybe they can participate more with physical therapy. Or maybe because they have better mobility, now I'm not as worried about aspiration pneumonia, right? You know, there, there are so many things we work hand in hand together, and it's it's so, so important. Um that is definitely your theme, Zahia, is you are a lifelong learner. You're doing your PhD. You're teaching the future speech pathologists of Lebanon. Um, when do you finish your PhD? What's that looking like? I hope so. Uh, as I'm planning and as everything is planned, it's supposed I'm supposed to finish in September 2022 in one year. But, you know, with all the challenges that I have here in Lebanon and sometimes, especially because I'm doing it in, uh, with Belgium University, due to COVID, I couldn't travel. Only in the first year I was able to travel. Uh, so I'm continuing everything online as every country now in the world. Uh, but um, I hope I will be able to finish on time. But we don't know because now we are, they are talking about the Delta variant. So maybe we will have another challenge of COVID another time. And in Lebanon with the challenges of sometimes I don't have Wi-Fi. I don't have my, I don't have electricity. So I can't even attend meetings. So I try to always to do backups to recharge my phone, my iPad, my, my, and mm-hmm. I have to work with the hotspot. So it's not that easy. And to be very honest also, that challenge also, like I'm doing my PhD uh, on uh, do, uh, uh, on improving the patient education and the family education related to swallowing disorders, and one of uh, like um, the research is the tar- target of the research is to work with healthcare professionals to implement a certain intervention with their patient uh, in their daily uh, settings. But the problem in Lebanon now, most of the healthcare professionals they are so tired. And they have a lot of challenges. So, you know, usually to uh, like healthcare professionals to be, let's say, to cooperate with you in, uh, in research is usually a challenge in normal days. But to add on the, uh, the, the current situation in Lebanon when, with the COVID, the economic situation, the revolution, the crisis, the cut of the shortage of everything, to reach out for healthcare professionals and to ask them, please, would you take my intervention and to try to implement it with your patient, even though I know it will help in their daily practice and it will help their patient and their families and it will help to improve their quality of life and their self-efficacy, their adherence and everything. And it will help the healthcare professional, uh, let's say, um, daily life or daily therapy. But there is a lot of challenges. I feel this will be another challenge for me to convince them in order to try it out. And I'm going to do so also in Belgium, maybe, but also there is that challenge of COVID. So mm-hmm. hopefully in one year, yeah. maybe a little bit more, but yeah. uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. I'm not letting go, so we'll get there. Yeah. Hopefully. No, definitely. And, and it's important work that you're doing, especially with the challenges of burnout and yes. fatigue which is common in many places, but it is especially high in Lebanon right now with the situation. 
So Zahia, you've been talking a lot of great things about what it's like to be a speech pathologist in Lebanon, what your path was, the importance of lifelong learning, cultural considerations. Um, any any other final thoughts to help wrap up our wonderful discussion? Uh, actually, just like one fun, the final thing, uh, I wanted to also just take it to uh, to mention it, like because I used to uh, I start working like as I told you twelve years ago, and uh, when I start working, I used to do my job, like I do I I do the assessment, I do the therapy, and uh, I try to learn and everything, but I was I didn't understand the value of it as supposed to. Till the day my dad got a brain uh, bleeding and he was he had dysphagia and he had dysarthria few years ago. So when I got this in the family and I understood the, um, when we are working with a family and we tell them maybe we need, let he needs few weeks or few months to improve. He will need, the, maybe he won't be able to eat now this. He will eat maybe next week, maybe in two weeks. We don't know. So we didn't, I didn't understand the struggle and I didn't understand how eager someone or the family will be. When I lived it with my family and with my dad, I understood. And I think this thing shifted my career. And uh, even that's why I did my master's degree with a focus on swallowing disorders. And I'm doing my PhD with a uh, focus on swallowing disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, but my like my message for future SLP or for SLPs in general, don't wait for something this hard to happen in mm -hmm. your daily life in order to switch your career and to be there for the patient are, as we are supposed to be a therapist. Uh, and each therapist count and always, always, always use the name of the patient. <laughs> Please yeah. use the name of the patient. He's not a number, he's not a he, he's not a she, he's a patient with a maybe name, family name, anything, but just give him the value that he needs because it changed everything. So yeah, that's yeah. No, that's, point. no, I hope your, your dad is doing well and it's, interesting to see how these things in our lives just completely shift exactly. our careers yes. and whatnot. Thank exactly. you so much for sharing, Zahia. We really you. appreciate you coming and we hope Thank all goes well for you in the future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi there, I'm Janan, and welcome to the Post Podcast Roundtable Discussion. I'm here with... Uh, Christopher, speech therapist. <laughs> And Christina, I'm also a speech-language pathologist. And we're here to talk about our discussion with Zahia today. First of all, guys, what were your first impressions of Zahia? I loved her, thought she was wonderful, but would love to hear what you guys think about our discussion. Yeah, I felt like she had so many experiences and so much cultural knowledge to offer. Um, it was really interesting hearing her observations about the healthcare system in Lebanon, um, how she, what the qualifications are for speech therapy there and being a speech language pathologist um, and really just the disparities of healthcare. I think the biggest part that I was shocked about was hearing that um, families have to pay for speech therapy. I think that's a really big um topic i feel that's been mm. kind of even a hot topic here in the u.s and and i can't even imagine in other parts of the world and um that was something that i was thinking about a lot while listening to 
sort of, you know, her answer her questions and, and listen to her journey. Yeah, for me, I mean, wow, just the, the amount of experience she's had already in her, her career and the journey that she's, um, that she's undergone to get where she's got. And, 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 and when you think of our own journeys and um, in, our, um, in our own countries and the, the way that we've studied, the opportunities that we've been given and that we potentially take for granted and how much she's had to, I don't want to say fight, but how much she's had to motivate and how she's had to go beyond her normal everyday, what was offered to her to get to the same place that potentially we are, we are at. Uh, with not as much work that that really interested me first of all mm-hmm. second of all very much um the the interested me as well christina the 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 disparities between the healthcare uh, systems um of, of the us and then for me in south africa the similarities that um our different sort of socioeconomic um status will 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 give you or, or not give you. Yeah, a very common thing we're, we're discussing here is about how the socioeconomic status, the way that insurance works, or maybe mm. it's not present um, in Lebanon and how that's impacting therapy for patients. That's That was definitely a big area. Um, I felt like when she was talking about it, it was very much um, that advocacy Mm-hmm. A component, right, of talking about, well, you know, if that one family member knew that, hey, my my fam- my dad or my my sibling could have had a, an opportunity to swallow food again, you know, but instead he just had a feeding tube placed because mm-hmm. that was the only solution I knew about, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I think it just ke- keeps up the discussion of how important it is to just break those barriers and fight like like you said christopher in a way to show the value of speech pathology and even rehabilitation in general Mm. is something that she's a big proponent of yeah sort of the themes that are are coming about and um i know this is one of our first um interviews and our first round tables but definitely advocacy seems to be coming up time and time again and I know in uh, another podcast we're going to be talking about advocacy again because it appears that when you have um, maybe a a, a culture yes culture is one thing but also even team members I'm talking doctors physicians where you're having to advocate our services all the time Potentially because we are a younger profession, and when I say younger, you know, when we when we compare ourselves to um, occupational therapy or physical therapy, let's look at the timeline of of when our profession came about, uh, and we compare ourselves to to those professions. That's potentially why we're still having to advocate so much, and and in countries where we haven't um, been around for such a long time. I mean. I mean, Zahir's country, she's, uh, speech therapy has been around for 20 years. Is that right? Um, I remember hearing that. Right. And yeah, yeah. 20 years, you, you think, oh, that's not a long time really for a profession, is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's in, in a lot of ways, it's still in its infancy. And, and seeing how she's 
trying to, and how her journey even with medical speech pathology sparked from her father's experience, right? And that it took that for her to then realize, wow, there is a very big gap. <laughs> and yeah. I may be one of those to help fill it. That was profound to hear from her. And I think an, another major theme with Zahia is she is, I think, the true definition of a lifelong learner. As in, you know, she started as a pediatric speech pathologist and worked her way into medical speech pathology with adults and geriatrics um, and how she felt like she didn't have a lot of knowledge and education in dysphagia. So what did she do? She didn't just sit there. She went to courses and she's currently getting her PhD in dysphagia education to help empower family members um, in her region to learn more about speech pathology. I think it's definitely something that in any field is valuable to be a lifelong learner and how that could benefit our future clinicians, but even our patients or the people we serve. Yeah. And really like, how do we um, advocate, advocate on, you know, advocacy is a big thing on behalf of the patient or the client, but also how do we advocate for family and caregiver education? And that's another thing that comes up later in another podcast as well. How um, do we ensure that our thoughts and our profession in general, you know, is is viewed upon as important? Um, and Zahia really touched on this as well, just, you know, um, where families have to decide, like, which area is going to be the most important. Um, she talks about a patient that had to learn how to walk first and get kind of that going before going through speech therapy. Um, and and that's interesting. Like, there's a really big cultural element, too, in practice there on what do families deem is important and how does how is that affected by culture, too? Um, that's a really, yeah, that was something that I was thinking about a lot during that that part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. And for me, uh, it rang kind of true with how I experience things here in South Africa. And I suppose part of this um, podcast is about bringing in our own experiences and talking about our cultural differences in our different cities and our different countries. And um, very much so, we have similar um, concerns and issues in South Africa with regards to um, health insurance um, or government-based um, services and, you know, what is deemed most important. And then who deems it? Is it the family or is it the doctor? And then so that comes, then comes the advocacy again, like have we done our advocacy for the doctors, for them to say it's very important for you to uh, go to occupational therapy first or speech therapy or physio? Um here for us culturally it appears that um and i say us i'm using a huge umbrella we're part of we've got 11 um, official languages so that means potentially we've got 11 cultures right um but where i worked in public health the um the experiences that 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 we came across a lot or that i came across was very much once you had a, a neurological incident the most important thing for our families was to walk. 
you know, never mind the fact that you're not really swallowing or you can't really talk, but when am I going to see the walking doctor? That's the most important. So that um, I resonated with Zahia when she was talking about, you know, talking about what is the most important thing post-incident. And then for me, what was really interesting, which we don't um, experience here in South Africa because we haven't had such intense, um, uh, I mean, that explosion that happened. We're talking about that. And right now, you know, what is the most important thing? It's, it's actually getting fuel and it's getting bread. I mean, can you imagine, you know, worrying if you're going to be able to, to feed your family? So, yeah, um, I'm not sure if, if, if you guys experience that in, in America. I know there's some families in South Africa who are sort of living below the poverty line, and that is a day-to-day thing. But on average, um, yeah. Right, and, and that goes into how the quality of life at baseline, you know, without without even discussing any sort of deficits, physical, emotional, speech, what cognitive, right? That there is this now economic, I mean, economic travesty and, and tragedy um, in Lebanon going on. And it's something that, yeah, the priorities have shifted. And, and it is unfortunate that people may want to have support in certain areas, but because I either go pay this X amount of money to go get my one therapy session, whichever therapy, or I can maybe feed my family for, for an X amount of time, um, that definitely impacts things. And I think even in therapy then for her, you know, making the most of what she can offer in that session, I think is, is was an underlying tone that she was kind of thinking about. Um and it's and hopefully something that will improve. And um, I think something that I found really interesting with her too is when she's saying with each session, she might even switch languages, right, to help get the most of the session. Because many individuals in Lebanon um, are at least bilingual, if not tri or quadlingual. Um, and I can attest this with my family in Lebanon. They all can speak three languages for the most part. And it's, and that can add a level of complexity to therapy um, that may not be present in areas that are monolingual. Um, yeah, I can also talk to the, um, the multilingual aspect uh, of, of therapy. Um, and, and for me, coming from a, a white English background um, where in terms of colonialism, which is another whole topic altogether, right? But uh, white English, we kind of, um, or my forefathers were really sort of oppressive in pushing our culture and pushing our language as the, as the, as the main culture, right? And I don't know enough about about it to actually talk um, intellectually about it. All I know is from 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 school what I learned, from university what I learned, and what I'm learning all the time. And anyway, then now having therapy and being in a room with somebody from a different culture, from a different language, it is it challenging. 
um, for me as a therapist, but also for the, you know, as my patients or my clients sitting there, all they want to do is they want to learn to communicate again. So um, I think this brings the, 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 the whole purpose of, of what we're trying to do here, uh, cultural diversity into play. And it's a, um, for, for me, uh, what Zahir was saying and, and what you were just saying now, Janan, is that it's, it's, it's sitting there, sitting opposite a person with a different culture than you, with a different language than you. How much have you or are you willing to come out of your place of, um, of what's the word I'm looking for? Not authority, of, of privilege. There we go, of, of privilege, right? Uh, and, and that's a, pr- a place of privilege of everything you've been given for in life, but also right in that place, a place of, of privilege of being educated and being potentially m- more able to communicate because you haven't had a neurological event, right? And, and it's just that having that thought process, being in that space where you're able then to connect with that person, um, which kind of leads, leads to another theme that, um, that, that's been coming up as well and, and we came up with Zahir, and that is all about resources and about tests, which are culturally appropriate. Um, and she definitely, she talked about a couple of them, uh, tests that are standardized, uh, but maybe not, not valid um, or not standardized even, just translated to be used, but they, they, they've not got population to, or they've not had the validity um, tests sort of done as yet. And we've got a very similar issue in South Africa. We've got so many languages so and not enough speech therapists that have done all the scientific testing and the rigor behind it. So, uh, I yeah, again, it reson- she, what she was going through resonated with me as a speech therapist a lot. Right, right, yeah. And I'm a bilingual speech pathologist. I do speak Arabic. And even in Arabic, there are so many different dialects. Or I feel like even being an Arab-American and the Arab-American dialect is kind of a a thing that's forming and could be different within regions based on the different Arab immigrant populations in the area. Um, So it was very interesting to hear because I feel like when I do work with Arabic speaking patients, I am definitely reinventing the wheel and creating products that do not exist. Um, So it was very interesting for her to talk about too of just how, okay, well, I'll use this content from a French assessment because the patient also speaks French, but then I'll use the English one because they also speak English. And then the Arabic one, well, I might just adapt it from something else and just kind of mixing and matching. And Yes, we put a lot of emphasis as speech pathologists, um, especially in language and articulation in those areas on standardized assessments, you know, that is the gold standard of assessment. Um, But in reality, a lot of people around the world and, you know, are using more informal things. We don't have that access. Like, Like you were mentioning too, Christopher, in Lebanon, it's been around for about 20 years, speech pathology. And in the Arab world, maybe a little bit longer in certain areas, but but still, it's something that's so new and so much more research needs to go into this that I don't know if in our lifetimes we'll have the adequate su- supplies for all the regions of the world to have standardized assessments. So what can we do to support those 
speech pathologists who don't have, you know, kind of make that informal assessment maybe a little bit more formal in some way? Yeah, definitely. Coming up with some type of um, plan, schema, some type of skeleton of, of an assessment, like what are the areas that you want to look at in terms of your informal assessment? And, and I think Zahir was also talking then about breaking it down into the modalities or the, um, uh, yeah, and in the, within those modalities, then making sure that you assess or that you at least screen and you get as much information as possible so that you're able to then get a baseline of current abilities right? So that you can then build on that. And then later on, when you use the same informal um, uh, test or same informal assessment, you can then see at least some type of growth, right? Then something that you're able to then measure to see is therapy being effective or not. Yeah. And like thinking about how much more effort does that take as a practitioner when you are bilingual or looking at a patient in a culturally responsive way, like how much extra time goes into assessing a client or patient. Like I think about it all the time, especially with my Spanish speaking patients, like how do I, um, and then, you know, with kids, it's, it's the pediatric population. It's almost, it's different, but it's almost the same. Like I will pick a subtest from um, one test like the self, and then I will, you know, do formulated sentences, but then I'll do a language sample on top of it because I don't feel comfortable giving this entire assessment. Um, but then having to find other ways of dynamic, dynamic assessment so that you get kind of an idea of like where, you know, cause the nice thing, the nice thing about standardized tests is that you get an idea of what goals to, to use. It's, it's really easy for treatment planning. But then with informal assessments, you really have to nitpick and think, okay, what type of skills am I looking at? Am I looking at just expressive language, receptive language, how that they're able to produce a narrative about maybe a picture? Like I know Zakia mentioned the cookie jar picture. That is something mm-hmm. that we've talked even even in grad school. I remember talking about that picture and being like, well, this isn't really culturally relevant a lot of the times. Like um, I didn't have a cookie jar growing up, you know, that's something that maybe I had to learn on later on. And then, you know, think about other people down the line, like how, how do they, how are they able to understand that? And then let, let alone create a narrative off of that. Um, but then also thinking about, I want to test theory of mind, social language, how are they able to understand, um, you know, topics of conversation and then add on to something that also relates to that topic, um, I think about that a lot with kids with autism. Um, that's a big social language deficits is a huge thing. Um, so it's really, I honestly, I think after listening to what Zakia had to say about bilingualism and how that plays a role, I mean, it's crazy how much we are feel just doesn't look like our clientele. Like we, you know, we're struggling in these elements. And I think a lot about because because of the diversity, the lack of diversity in our field, or the lack of representation of identities across, like not even just, um, I don't even think about just uh, BIPOC 
individuals, you know, people of color. Yes, we definitely need more representation, but more representation from the LGBTQ community, more representation from um, individuals from low socioeconomic status, or just individuals that came from maybe a different plan, right? Not just like bachelor's, master's, PhD, or, or um, maybe some individuals that went to community college and just tried different things um, before they came into the field. So how does that, you know, how, how is that going to better our field? I think it's going to just provide so much more diversity um, and an ability to relate to our clients so that we're not constantly, so we can find answers to these questions about testing and, and how to make them more adaptable. Definitely. I think just looking like look, you wrapped it up so well, Christina, of just how the level of diversity, not only in the United States, but across spaces like Christopher's talking about South Africa with what Zahia was talking about in Lebanon, talking about how everyone's backgrounds can impact their client and how everyone's um, in their own knowledge can impact their client. How for her, a big area that's helped her is being the lifelong learner that she is, right? being open and flexible to doing therapy by candlelight, right? Um, things like that, I think, show the resilience of rehabilitation, that in general, as therapists, we push hard to get our patients better, get our clients, get our students better, because we know that this is part of their quality of life, no matter what obstacles. And for Zahia, her obstacles are, you know, that she does not have electricity sometimes or the fuel to get to her home health patient or things like that. And kind of how can we support each other across the world with that? You know, being having these conversation is one of those ways, having her story heard. Um, does anyone have any other final thoughts about our discussion with her or, or anything? I think it was a wonderful discussion with her. I I just could talk to her for hours. She was great. Um, I think it's a great introduction of learning about what it's like to be a rehabilitation professional around the world. Yeah, so, absolutely. Christina, I think um, yeah. I think it's a, an awesome uh, one of our first podcasts. And if that's the beginning, can you imagine where we're going to go? You know, where where is this journey going to take us when we start with somebody like Zahir and um, I'm very excited to learn and to grow and to yeah be able to convey what we're what we're finding. Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to thank Zakia again for being a part of this podcast. I think it's opening everybody's eyes to Absolutely. you know a different oh, way yeah. of practicing. So grateful mm -hmm. that we got to listen to that. Yeah, thank you, Zakia. Yeah. Yeah, Zahia, thank you so much. Shukran is thank you in Arabic. Uh, we appreciate you so much. Um, thank you, Christina and Christopher, also for sharing your thoughts. Um, and we look forward to having many more conversations. Okay, bye. <laughs>